As we get started in, in this uh, passage today, Mark 3, 21 through 35, and we're going to start with 21, even though we covered it last week, because it really ties into this week as we look at this text. And just for Charles and Dougal's uh, sake, and anybody else who may have not been here for the last couple of weeks, Mark's Gospel, remember, is considered one of the first Gospels written. Most think it is the first Gospel written. It was written to Christians in Rome. It was written from Peter's account. All four Gospels are eyewitness accounts. Now, Luke did not write from an eyewitness account. Luke wrote interviewing eyewitnesses. And he had the authority of Paul to do that. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke as an eyewitness account. Matthew's written from an eyewitness account from one of the twelve. John's written from one of the twelve. But Mark is written from Peter's perspective. And, and many of the commentators and have uh, alluded to the fact that he wrote... He, they believe he was a translator for the Apostle Peter. And so his Gospel is primarily focused on... Jesus as the servant king. They all have a different perspective. But Mark is quick. He is action-packed, just like Peter was. Peter was always quick to do something. And, and when you, you read Mark, it's almost like the USA Today version of the Gospel. It's just really compacted. So Mark doesn't go into the theological details a lot of times, even though there's theology there. He doesn't gear up near the preaching passages that Matthew gives or Luke gives. And so as we've been working through, remember the key part of Mark is verse 1. The beginning of the what? The euangelion, which is the gospel. We heard that word gospel and until you guys heard me explain the euangelion is in its original intent, did anybody else ever know it meant the gospel was about his rule and reign? I didn't know that till I learned about the history of that word. That word was a secular word, and it was a word where they would call people into the streets to give an announcement, and it was good news, good news, good news, or they would go euangelion, 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 and it could only be used if a new king was crowned, if a new king was born, or if a king had won a great military victory. So the writers knew what they were doing when they wrote that. And so we looked at chapter 1 as we worked through it of that euangelion of Jesus that He came to rule and reign. He didn't... Like when I was growing up in the Baptist church in Mississippi that I grew up in, when I heard the word gospel, I just thought Jesus dying on the cross to pay for my sins. That's what it means. I didn't think about His rule and reign in my life. I didn't think about anything but my sins being paid for on the cross. Now, is that a part of that? Of course it is, because He wins a great military victory over Satan. He defeats death. He makes that possible. But it's much bigger than just that. And we have to see the, the whole Gospel and all the Gospels through that lens as we look at that because they all use the term euangelion. Paul uses the term euangelion. And Jesus Himself, when it says He proclaimed the Gospel about Himself, He said the kingdom is here. In other words, I'm here fulfilling the Scripture 
that Messiah is coming. The problem is those people that were looking for Messiah was not looking for what He was. One, they had no idea He was God. They thought He was sent from God, but they did not see Him as God. They didn't believe. They believed He would be a great military leader like David. And that's what they were looking for. Because what was the biggest problem going on for the Jewish people at the time that Jesus came? Rome. The Roman occupation. And so often we forget. I mean, and I know we're hard on these guys, but if we had lived under that, we would have been wanting the same thing, especially with our history of God delivering us out of what? Out of Egypt. That was the thing that that they remembered more than anything. And then even uh, out of Babylon, He sent them back to rebuild the temple. And so they, they, there was 400 years of silence and they were looking for Messiah, but they weren't looking for God to come in the flesh. We saw Jesus at the end of chapter 1 start really showing acts. Well, actually, it was before the end because demons were crying out, Jesus, Son of God, in chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, He healed a, uh, a leper. And no leper had, no Jewish leper had been healed, only Naaman, the Syrian. They actually had a court of lepers in the temple. And they knew, and the tradition was that when Messiah came, the one prophesied in the scriptures, that he would heal the diseases. And so when a leper was healed, they knew Messiah was here. So they had a court of lepers for a leper to go to the temple to show himself to the priest where he could go into because they were not allowed to go into the temple. They had to go unclean, unclean, unclean wherever they walked. They were not allowed to go in except had they been healed, they could then go in and show themselves to the priest. And so he healed a leper. He also healed a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 2. And this paralytic could not do anything for himself His friends had to take him to Jesus. And when his friends took him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven, which blew the religious leaders away. They're like, what do you mean? Only God can forgive sins. And he goes, so you know that I have that authority? Take up your mat and walk. And he did. Now the leper and the paralytic were symbolic. Jesus did in the physical what he was about to do in the spiritual with Matthew. Levi was sitting at his tax booth in chapter 2. And Jesus goes by and says, hey, follow me. He didn't go seek him. He was greedy. What? He was a traitor to his people. Levi had traded the glory of being God's chosen people for aligning himself with Rome for money and greed. Can that happen to us? Can we be deceived by the enemy and think we need to provide for ourselves instead of trusting God to provide for us? Can we make unholy alliances in accomplishing that? You bet. It happens all the time. And so, Jesus walks by and He says, Hey, you, come on, follow me. Matthew goes, Me? He goes, Yeah, you. Come on, follow me. And He started following Him. He didn't do anything to earn it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He wasn't even seeking it. Jesus came to him. 
Because it says all the other people were coming around him, but not Matthew. He's sitting at the tax booth getting his money. And Jesus said, come on, Matthew. Come on. And he started following him. And Matthew was a spiritual picture of what he did with the leper and the paralytic. He couldn't go on his own. And leprosy was always symbolic of sin. And that was in chapter 2. And then what happens is between that and uh, Jesus was kind of accosted by the Pharisees for not, his disciples weren't fasting. They start attacking his guys. Why aren't your guys mourning? They're partying with these sinners because Matthew went and invited people to come, which is normal. That's what happens when you have your life changed by Jesus. You want to tell other people. You want them to hear. And so he goes and gets these people. They start following. Everybody's having a party except for the religious leaders who are saying, we should be fasting and mourning. And Jesus says, no, I'm here. I'm here. You don't mourn while I'm here. And, and so then he goes to Jerusalem. He heals a guy in the temple there who's a paralytic. The guy doesn't even ask for healing. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He doesn't even say yes. He says, I ain't got anybody to throw me in the water. He heals that guy on a Sabbath, which provokes the Pharisees even more. They follow him back to his hometown. And as he's going back, he's walking through grain fields and they're picking, hey, you, you violate the Sabbath. Your guys are violating the Sabbath. They're working. They're picking grain. And they were allowed to do that. And he corrects them. He says, listen, your fences that you put up, all these oral traditions aren't God's word. They're your traditions. And he corrects him. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He makes another declarative statement about his deity there. He forgives sins and he's Lord of the Sabbath. And that was their highest holiest day. And so last week, well, let me go back. He then goes into a synagogue on a Sunday again. Not the same Sunday, a different Sunday. And he heals a guy with a withered hand. He just heals this guy. And it irritates him even more. And then they start colluding with the Herodians. The Herodians were a political group and they said, we're going to destroy him. And, and we saw that. And then what did Jesus do last week? We covered in, in 3, the verses 7 through 21. He started withdrawing from those religious leaders going to the everyday people. And, and then he picked 12 guys to be his ambassadors, his special ambassadors, his big A apostle ambassadors who would go represent him to the people of Israel. And we saw these 12 ordinary men that he called were people that he gave that same authority to do miracles. And they did. They cast out demons. And they, they didn't have any special talents. He just called them. And he enabled them to do those things. And we saw that. And we also saw the response of his family last week at the end. His family goes, well, they heard they heard about what he was doing and they wanted to do an intervention on him because they were concerned about him losing his mind. Well, this week, what we're going to see is the religious leaders just flat out attribute his works to Satan. Because there's only two explanations for supernatural power. Only two. God the Creator or Satan. There's no other options. And so for them, they had to choose Satan because they, they didn't want to choose God. It wasn't because 
They couldn't choose God. They just chose not to. And so the family tries to intervene. Remember, last week they heard, but they were still at home when they heard about it. So they came. And we're going to see that this week they actually come and try to intervene. And then we're going to see those who actually believe in Him as the Son of God around Him. And so we're going to see three responses in this text. And and if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he talks about these three responses. But for, for the sake of the outline today, the three responses to Jesus are those who believe He's deranged, those who believe He's demonic, are those who believe He's divine. Those are the three responses in the text today. Those who believe He's deranged, He's lost His mind. Those who believe He's demonic, in other words, the power that He's exhibiting comes from Satan, not God. Therefore, it's evil. And then third is those who actually believe He's divine. C.S. Lewis calls it liar, lord, or lunatic. He's got to be one of those three things. And so we're going to read the text, and then we'll come back, and we'll look at each one of these and kind of work through. And just for the sake of of working through this, we're going to look at verse 21 and 31-33, and the fact that his family thinks he's deranged. But we're going to read the whole text to start with. So if you've got a Bible, but we're going to start in Mark 3, verse 21. It says, And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. These are the very words of God. His family heard. They were back home and they had heard that he's going around healing people and crowds are following him. They're crowding in on him. The Pharisees want to hurt him. And again, at this time, what's going on? Who's in charge? Rome. What does Rome not want? They don't like controversy. 
They like Pax Romana. They like the peace. And so his family's concerned he's going to end up crucified, which was true. But they're, they're coming down there to intervene. He's out of his mind. Doesn't he realize what he's doing? Why are you in the temple? Why didn't you come with us? Don't you realize I must be about my father's business? You see, sometimes we take the humanity out of Mary. We take the humanity out of his family and, and things going on. But whenever he was doing these things, it was, it was upsetting people. And the people you didn't want to upset were the Romans. And they were a lot more micromanaging than you think they were. Because we just kind of, we don't even talk a lot about the Romans. But they were involved with everything, the taxes and all this stuff. Now they lost Matthew, who was a tax gatherer, and he's following Jesus. You think that didn't evoke some interest on the part of the Romans? And so they believed he was deranged. They thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was out of his mind. And when they heard about it, his family set out to stop him. Now you got to remember over in John chapter 7, Verse 5, it says, His brothers did not believe. His brothers didn't believe. Well, don't you think Mary and Joseph told him about the angels? Don't you think they told him about the temple? He's 12 years old, man. He's schooling the religious leaders down in Jerusalem. I mean, 12 year olds didn't do that, they didn't believe. Can you imagine just on a human level what it was like growing up with Jesus as your brother? <laughs> Think about the fact that he, that he grew up. He didn't do any miracles. He was just a normal guy. He, he was. Um, I mean, his humanity was what they witnessed for 30 years. And then he goes, okay, I'm going down to Capernaum. And he starts healing people. Remember, he, at Nazareth, in his hometown, he stood up and says, today this is fulfilled, then he leaves. And when he left us, he started doing all these miracles. Demons started saying things. Hey, Jesus, Son of God, they, they knew who he was. And, and his brothers are back home, and they get word. Hey, your brother has got a big crowd upsetting the religious leaders. And, and just think for a second from Mary's perspective. Is it possible that a mom can be more consumed for her the safety of her kids than maybe God's will? Does that ever happen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot. That's very normal. A protective instinct of a mother. So they're sitting up there and they go, we got to go. And by the way, we haven't gotten to Mark 6, but listen to what Mark 6 says. He goes back to his hometown and listen to what it says. Mark 6, verse 3. Jesus had stood up in the synagogue and he was teaching. And this is what they said. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
Jesus is saying he had no honor in his household. That's what he's saying right here. He says, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled at their unbelief. Remember what his brothers said in John five or John seven? Go prove you are who you say you are. Go to Jerusalem and do miracles down there and prove that you are the Son of God. And so they did an intervention. Go over to verse 31. It says, And his mother and his brothers came. And they stood outside. They were standing outside. And they sent to him and called him. They didn't even go in where he was. And guys, this is what my friend Tommy calls a hermeneutical clue. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of Scripture. And a lot of times when you see something like we're seeing here in this text, verse 31, his family was standing outside. And then... A verse later, you see there were people sitting around him. And his earthly family was outside. His spiritual family was inside. And what we see is when they sent to him, they, they, he was crazy and they were doing an intervention on him. In verse 32, it says a crowd sitting around him. And they said, your mother and your brothers are seeking you. And notice his response. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus has given us a teaching here. And he's, what he's doing is he's contrasting an earthly family with a spiritual family. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? There's no special privileges for Mary, for his brothers, just because they're earthly related to Him. He makes that clear. Mary needs a Savior just like everybody else. His brothers need a Savior. In fact, Mary over in the Magnificat in Luke 1.47 says, My God and my Savior. She needed a Savior. She wasn't sinless, as some people proclaim. There is no sinless person except for Jesus. Him and Him alone. And so, they think He's crazy. And they're doing an intervention. And Jesus says, these, these aren't my family here. I mean, this is not my priority. Not my earthly family. There was another passage, I, I can't remember the exact location right now, I think it's in Luke, where some ladies go, blessed are the, the womb that bore you, and blessed is the breast that nursed you. And he said, more blessed is the one who does the will of God. And, and he's basically saying, yeah, it's not about the earthly, it's about the spiritual. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and I want to read a section of it because people, people like to say Jesus is a good teacher. He was a good moral man. I believe he was a, a good guy. Muslims say he was a prophet. Well, listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say because a man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. You can't say he was a good guy, a good man. He said, I'm the only way to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so the religious leaders believed that he wasn't a lunatic. They believed he served Satan. They believed he was demonic. And in verse 22, the scribes from Jerusalem, whose job it was, was to record what the Sadducees and the Pharisees said and to, just to make sure things were okay and right with the Scriptures, they went to investigate. And in verse 22, it says they were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. Who's Beelzebul? I was wondering Do you know where that name came from? It's the Greek form, and a corrupted Greek form actually, of the name Baal Zebub. B A A L Z E B U B. And Baal Zebub was a pagan Philistine god from the city, the Philistine city of Ekron, E K R O N. And if you go to 2 Kings verse or chapter 1 verse 2 you'll see that. And the literal meaning of the word Baal Zebub is master of the high place or lord of the high place. And it was used for Satan, but it meant master the high places were where they worshiped idols. And they found archaeological evidence at some of the Philistine excavation sites. And they've uncovered images, golden images of flies. Because after the time of the Philistines, the Jews changed the name from Beelzebub to Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Poop. Lord of the dung. Yeah, that's what it meant. And the name represented the God of filth. The, 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 the Jewish people changed that name. They, they corrupted it to that's what it meant, but it always referred to Satan. And so they were saying, this guy's from Satan. He's empowered by Satan. And, and it was used over in Matthew chapter 12, and it's used here. And they believed he was demonic. They believed he was a liar and he represented the father of lies, Satan. And I love what he does in verse 23. It says, 
He called them to him. You guys, growing up, you remember that, that moment when your, your dad would go, come here. You knew you were about to get schooled on something? Because, you know, son, come here. Come here. Jesus called them to him. You calling me Satan? <laughs> I love that. And it says he used parables. And so he goes, how can Satan cast out Satan? Like, if I'm from Satan, why am I casting out demons? A house divided. A kingdom divided. He gives these examples. He starts with a kingdom. By the way, which president used a house divided? Anybody know? Come on. Abraham Lincoln. He quoted that. He quoted that verse. A house divided can't stand. That's Jesus is giving this teaching that... It's ridiculous to think that I'm empowered by Satan and I'm casting demons out. That makes no sense. And he says that Satan divided can't stand. He's going to fall. He's finished. Then in verse 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house, which is Satan there, unless he's stronger. You can't go in to Satan's house and dominate him unless you're stronger than he is. There's only one stronger than Satan. It ain't no human. It's God and God alone. And in verse 28, he says, all sins will be forgiven of man. Even blasphemy. Are there blasphemers that we know in Scripture that have been forgiven? Paul. Yeah. That's good. Yep, he says it in Timothy. 1 Timothy. I was a blasphemer. Do you know what it means to blaspheme, by the way? I know we, we read phrases like that. Do you know what it means? What do you think it means? Hmm? Slander. It, it, it means to speak with contempt about God. To verbally attack His character, His name, His person, His attributes. It, it's, it's really... Uh, we don't use it. We read it in the Scriptures, but we don't use it. But there are actually crimes in the Middle East that... Islamic people can be convicted of blasphemy against who? Muhammad. And they can be killed. In the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for blasphemy. In fact, over in Leviticus 24, there was a guy who blasphemed God and they killed him right there on the spot. Because he blasphemed the name of God. And he was stoned to death. There was just no sacrifice. And so in verse 29, he says, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Guilty of an eternal sin. Whoa, that's pretty big. <laughs> how, how can that be? Because he hadn't set the Holy Spirit yet. Well, he hasn't sent the Holy Spirit into you. Was the Holy Spirit active and involved? Yes. When did the Holy Spirit become active and involved in the affairs of man? Hmm? Genesis. Genesis. 
see, we, we have a lot of times, the whole thing with the Trinity, we think of God as eternal, but we don't think of Jesus as eternal, and we don't think of the Holy Spirit as eternal. They've been there from the beginning. They've been active from the beginning. It's just that we don't have the Holy Spirit living in us permanently until after the crucifixion. But the Holy Spirit was very much involved in things going on. The Spirit would come on Samson and allow him to kill a thousand guys with the jawbone of an ass. So the Holy Spirit has been there. So what does he mean by whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness? Well, because you get asked, does that mean, can we still commit that? I've been asked that several times over the last 20, 30 years. Can we still do that sin today? Well, yes and no. Specifically, the way it was applied here to them, no. But we can reject like they reject. Basically, what's going on is they said, in verse 30 says, they were saying, He, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. They were attributing all the work He was doing to Satan. The miracles that were authenticating Him as Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, they attributed to Satan. And so they had the full revelation. Jesus said, hey, I'm here. He's, he's healing people. I forgive these sins. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then they see the works, but what? How many times uh, were the Pharisees and religious leaders satisfied with the miracles they saw? Never. It was never enough. And, and that's part of the problem because they rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Guys, the role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. And some people falsely will use this passage to say, well, if let's say Joe Blow is a faith healer in Jacksonville and he's Pretending to heal people, and it's all staged, but he's pretending. People have actually said, you better not blaspheme the Holy Spirit and say that's demonic. And they've used that phrase like that before. When you question somebody because they're doing something that really you don't believe scripturally they have the authority to do. Because they're not... The, the, the miracles in Scripture, I said this last week, there were three times in the Bible where you see miracles attributed to men to authenticate their message. Three times. Who were they? Remember? Moses, Moses and, and, and Joshua. They did miracles. Elijah and Elisha, the, the prophets. So you have Moses and Joshua, the law. Elijah, Elisha, the prophets. And Jesus and His apostles. That's it. There were a lot of men that did not do miracles that were great servants of God. And I, I went through the prophets. John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. And so there's this fascination with our culture to the, do the supernatural so that people will believe. People don't believe because they see the signs now. This is our sign now. It tells us, right? Right? 
It tells us who Jesus was. It tells us what He did. We have four eyewitness accounts. So we can read. If somebody's saying this is Jesus, this is who Jesus is, we can go here and verify. They didn't have this. And not everybody had a copy even of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so they had to have the authenticating miracles. And so, But some people today will say, you better not, if you say that, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit the way it's used here is to attribute the unfolding revelation of Jesus that was attested by the Holy Spirit through miracles to Satan. That's what it was. And, yeah. Uh, so clearly, the Jews didn't believe in the Trinity. We still don't, right? But the Holy Spirit, how new a concept would that have been when Jesus rolls that out and says, you know, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Would they have questions about that, or would they be clear for the scribes and everything? They believed in the Spirit of God in the sense of the power of God, yes. but they didn't think about. God necessarily from the perspective of three persons in one. One person being monotheistic, but three persons in, in distinct the way they interacted with us and the, their plan, they're part of the plan. It's even, it's, it's, we can't explain the Trinity. You can't explain it. It's not three, people try to use the analogy ice as water, steam, and, and, um, and a liquid, but it's it that doesn't even work because they're not. It's it is so far above us, but Scripture teaches it. And the role of the Holy Spirit was always what to point to the Son. That's what the role was. The Holy Spirit never glorified Himself, and so this particular eternal sin was because Israel's leaders committed a national sin by attributing God's work to Satan. That's what the problem was. If your final conclusion is that Jesus was doing the work of Satan after having the attesting miracles, having the Scripture, there's no other option. They're condemned to hell. That's what he was saying. And Romans 11 addresses it. Paul, when he wrote the Romans uh, in 11.25, said a partial hardening has taken place. This is not forever, but a partial hardening of the, the country of Israel, the nation of Israel. And one day, as a nation, they are going to respond to witnesses to the work of the Holy Spirit. But not now. But in Matthew 21, Jesus said this in verse 43. The kingdom will be taken away and given to a people producing its fruits. Who are those people? Yeah. It's the church. The church. Does the church replace Israel? Be careful. Yeah. No, we don't. A partial hardening. There will be a time when Israel will come back as a nation. And that's in Romans 9, 10, 11. That's where you, you got to go. Still chosen yeah, they are. But going back, I think it was you, Amos, who said Paul in 1 Timothy 1. He said, though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, 
but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. James, the brother of Jesus, his brothers and sisters acted ignorantly in unbelief because you know what happens in Acts chapter 1? In the upper room, you know who's there? His brothers and his mother are there. But this this group of religious leaders right now, they, they were rejecting him as Messiah. They said he was demonic. So you had his family saying he's deranged. You have the leaders saying he's demonic. And the third response is in verse 34. And these are the people who are gathered around him. And what does he say? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said this. Here are my mother and my brother. My brothers right here. Right here. And these are those that believe that he is Lord. He's divine. This is his spiritual family. Whoever does the will of God, he says... He's my brother, my sister. And what is the will of God? John 6.40 tells us, this is the will of God that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the will of God is for us to look on the Son and believe in Him, not believe about Him, not believe the facts about Him, but believe in Him that He's Messiah. He fulfilled the Scripture. He's real. He lives today, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And He's called me and you to follow Him, to be His people and in His kingdom. And we know His brothers eventually believe that because it said that in Acts. So He's either Lord or He's a liar, He's demonic, or He's a lunatic. But you can't say he's a good man if he's not God. John Mazel, my friend and mentor who I went to East West with for a long time, went over there and he's got a little booklet called Is Jesus God? And he gave this lecture to about, I think it was around 800 um, atheistic Russians who were at this university at Moscow State University. Somebody had the forethought to record it audio-wise, and then they printed it into a book called Is Jesus God? But he went on there, and I think out of the 800 there, like four or 500 of them repented that day and started following Jesus. I like to hear that. Well, I I got a booklet. I can get you the book because they put it in written form. They've distributed millions of copies around the world. And it's... uh, But John focused in that that talk on Jesus being God and the impact and the relevance of that in our life. So many people... you, You can ask a lot of people who know the story about Jesus but they don't really believe He's God. And so for us, as we think about that implication, let's ask ourselves the question, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I really believe? Not, not what do I ideally believe, but what do I really believe? What does my life show I believe? 
Do I believe He's divine and Lord? Master? The King of kings, Lord of lords? The ruler and reigner over His kingdom? Am I part of that kingdom? How's it affecting my life? Am I sitting outside away from Jesus because I'm embarrassed by what He's doing? Or am I sitting with Him? Walking with Him? That's an important question to ask because we live in a, a time, a lot of times, where we get embarrassed when we really start talking about Jesus. Start talking about what it means to follow Him because our culture does not like that anymore. It's not popular in our culture. It used to be 60, 70 years ago. It used to be a good thing. Now it's not a good thing. You, you know, um, and the more woke we go, even churches are starting to cave in on that and they're embarrassed about what Jesus taught. They're embarrassed about His Word. They're embarrassed to be associated with Him. And so what they've done is they've created a Jesus that is fluffy and makes everybody feel good. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to set a father against his daughter and a son against the father. We don't like talking about those verses, but he's talking about not the way we act toward people, but when we stand with him for the truth, when we walk with him in truth, it's going to alienate people that are into the world. It's going to alienate people that could care less about spiritual things. But those people that are his out in the world, when they see a Randy McCormick and they see Randy following Jesus, they're going, man, I, I, I want to talk to that guy. There's something different about him. Hey, hey, why are you so different? Hugo, man, I've seen your boss at Publix do this and this to you, and you just seem to handle it so. What, why are you so different? I want to be in the club you're in. I want to find out where you're learning. Am I seeking to do the will of God, guys? Because if you're walking with Him, you will. And you know, there's a parallel passage to this over in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus said this in that passage. If you're not with me, you're against me. And He says this, which makes it even more convicting to me. If you're not gathering with me, you are scattering. See, there is no neutral ground with Jesus. You can't be staying in one spot with Him because what's our responsibility with Him, by the way? What does He say? What did He tell us to do? Follow. Me. follow right? So we follow. So if we're not following, we're stationary. Do you think He's waiting on us? He's going. So what's happening to you and Him as He goes and you stay in one spot? Yes. Yeah. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering, you're scattering. Those are very convicting things. Same passage, I mean, same text over in Matthew 12. Matthew gives us a little more insight. You know, he stretches out a little bit more than Mark does. But it's there. So those are the takeaways for today. Again, who do I believe He is and what, what impact is that having on my life? 
Am I sitting outside away from him because I'm embarrassed about him? Or am I with him? Am I seeking to do his will? Am I seeking to do his will? Don, will you close us in prayer? Precious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this time, this study, uh, who the Holy Spirit is. Give us wisdom and understanding that He is in us because we have accepted you as Lord and Savior. And He's follow, He's He's helping us to follow what you want us to say, what you want us to do. And we just want to thank you, Lord. Be with the guys as they go today that they may be a witness for you, that they may be bold in you, and that they may trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.